Welcome back to another episode of Public Problems. Here again today, I'm with a few Bush School students um, who did an independent study with me in the fall of 2018 on redistricting and gerrymandering. So they have some really interesting cases and some background on these issues. But before we jump into that, I'd like to give the group members an opportunity to uh, introduce themselves. You're going to hear from four additional voices other than mine, and that way you can put a name with the face. So please, team, introduce yourselves. Hello, I am Court Mansky. I'm Zach Cochran. Sydney Serza. Leah McKinley. All right. So before we um, jump right into this, one of the things I like to ask the groups is why they picked this topic. And you, you as a group actually decided to do a whole semester on this as an independent study. So what really drew your attention to the issue of gerrymandering? Well, Gerrymandering has become such a hot topic recently. Uh, every election we've heard about states thinking about uh, attempting solutions to gerrymandering. We've had some big Supreme Court cases recently, uh, and particularly in, in the primary season and just the midterms in general, uh, it seems to be this looming fact that everyone can blame a lot of political problems on that uh, you, know, you hear President Obama talk about it. So I wanted to dive into it and see, is this a scapegoat? Is this really where most of our problems are stemming from uh, and what the real deal was? Excellent. So maybe the best thing to start is, I've used two terms already this morning, redistricting and gerrymandering. So <clears throat> let's talk about what we mean by gerrymandering. Uh, how, do, how did, as a group, as we went through this semester, how did you really think about it as a, as a term as you started to do some research on it? So we defined gerrymandering as the practice of drawing maps of voting districts to achieve certain political goals, and this is done by both the Democrat and Republican Party. And what's the history of this? I know Court was just mentioning that this is something that's in the news now. Is this, a, is this kind of a new phenomenon, or is this something that we've been wrestling with for some time? Uh, well, gerrymandering, uh, the word itself made its first appearance around 1812. Governor Elbridge Gerry of Massachusetts signed a redistricting bill that benefited the Democratic-Republican Party at the expense to the Federalist Party. Uh, the term was coined by the Boston Gazette, and a political cartoon that showed the uh, oblong, misshapen district with wings looking like a <laughs> salamander. Um, but... As we looked back in, uh, into the history of redistricting in the United States, uh, other than a couple of periods like the era of good feelings where there was domination by a single political party, gerrymandering and redistricting to advantage one's party to achieve a political aim has been very widespread and consistent and very well uh, written about. So how, are the, how, does, how do states – so one thing listeners may or may not know is this is a state's issue, right? States play the largest role in determining how the elections are done within their state. Um, and one interesting thing to me this semester, which I knew just a little bit about but not much, is that states have a whole uh, variety of approaches they can take to redistricting or for using redistricting for gerrymandering purposes. Um, so anyway, in the class we talked about a few different strategies that uh, states take not to gerrymander, but to just do the, ger uh, the redistricting process. Um, so I know the legislature often has the power there. There's uh, advisory commissions, independent commissions. So may maybe walk me through what are the different choices that states have for doing redistricting in the U.S.? So you've already hit on two of them. You have legislative redistricting, which is where the state legislature retains power and goes through a bill filing process to draw these lines. Mm -hmm. 
normally it seemed through our research that it just happens in a committee process. The, the They go behind closed doors. And long story short, representatives get to choose their voters. Um, we found that legislative redistricting seems to be the most problematic and most apt to breed gerrymandering instead of simple redistricting. There's also independent commissions where um, you have a number of people. For example, California has 14. Um, Arizona had less than 14. <laughs> where the makeup of an independent commission does vary by state because they are in state constitutions. Um, but there are no elected officials on the committees, which means that you have truly independent individuals drawing these districts, which seems to put a stop on gerrymandering. Um, not fully, but is much better than letting legislators redraw their districts. Then you have advisory commissions, which are actually commissions that help legislators draw the districts. Um, these appointed commissions assist legislators, like I said, drawing districts in both state legislative and congressional boundaries. Um, advisory commissions are nearly identical to legislative committees, though, that draft boundary lines, but non-legislators are not able to fully participate in the advisory portion of advisory commissions. And then you have politician commissions, which seven states utilize. They also vary state to state, but one commonality is that the people who serve on the commissions are legislators. So it's like legislative redistricting, but instead of the entire legislative body being able to deal with drawing the lines, you have very specific few. So before we go further, I think, in, which we talked about this a lot in our discussions, but just kind of taking the 10,000 foot view and thinking about incentives, which is something that we you do in your classes here and something we've talked about. Um, it's maybe not surprising that if you give the power to the people who are most impacted by those rules, that they'll twist them in their favor, right? So the idea that legislatures write the own, their own rules about districts, it's not maybe super surprising that then politicians use that to their advantage. And so what, What's interesting to think about, I think and we're going to get into these, I know when we get into the recommendations, but just from a, just an incentives uh, analysis, I suppose, it seems pretty clear to me that you're going to have more problems with uh, legislative redistricting, politician commissions, and then advisory commissions, and then least independent commissions, just on average based on what people's incentives are. Is that sort of, uh, is there any pieces of those that I'm missing that that does it make sense in terms of thinking about these four types? No, I definitely think that makes all of the sense. <laughs> I mean, when you have when you have somebody who says this is going to be my district and these are going to be the people who vote for me, you have all the incentive in the world to say I want these people and I don't want those people because those people won't vote for me, but these people will. Uh, I mean, throughout the course of our directed study, we had the chance to meet with uh, a few state representatives where. During one of our lunches, uh, one state rep noted how they wanted to remain in power long enough so they could get a hold of the crown <laughs> to draw their own district. So uh, I think we're pretty convinced that the incentives in legislative and politician commissions uh, yeah. are, are adverse. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's almost like a, in, that, in that context, it's almost like a spoils of war, right? The winners get to write history, and in this case, the winners get to write the rules, right? Um, so what types of, you know, uh, I had a little bit of understanding uh, about this when we started this directed study, but one of the things that I thought was most interesting was the strategy states use, right? It's not surprising to me once you realize that the 
the legislators uh, get to kind of help draw the districts that there might be some problems with it. But I thought it was kind of clever and interesting, the different types of tools that they used. So what are the, what are the different ways or some of the different problems that uh, are associated with gerrymandering? So some of the problems that we found with gerrymandering specifically deal with representative democracy. So gerrymandering obviously provides a unique problem to the theory of representative democracy. Ideally, in a representative democracy, the elected official will represent the district that voted him and her into office. But because gerrymandering is the act of drawing the lines to one's advantage, um, they get to choose who votes them instead of the voters choosing the elected official. You also have the issue of district boundaries, which uh, constitutionally states are delegated the power by the federal government to draw the district boundaries in both state house districts and congressional house districts, and therefore the district lines must be often, uh, as we mentioned before, constructed by state legislators. Redistricting in this way breeds uh, gerrymandering. Um, I think we use the terms interchangeably redistricting and gerrymandering simply because they're it's Almost all <laughs> yeah. redistricting is gerrymandering, yeah, depending on who you have. Uh, and then lastly, gerrymandering has issues with racial disparities. It's interesting to note that the Voting Rights Act holds a piece of language that says um, you have to have a minor basically a minority empowerment zone, um, meaning that if you can put enough minority into a district that will help them elect a minority, then you have to do that. Otherwise, your district is unconstitutional, mm -hmm. which later gives problems because then you deal with packing and cracking, which I think is something we haven't touched on. Yeah, let's jump. That was exactly uh, kind of where I wanted to go next with this. So tell me, particularly along the lines of racial disparities, what is cracking and packing? So packing is defined as concentrating a group of voters and limiting their voting power. And so you have a, in those minority empowerment zones, you can theoretically have a bunch of uh, a minority population there and limiting their say in who they get to choose as their representative. Uh, cracking is the opposite, where one group is split into many, and that can also dilute voting power as well, because there isn't enough to get a majority and pick who they want to pick. So you can either stuff all of the people of one group into one district so that there's 90% of one group in a district, and so a lot of the extra votes don't really matter because it's, it looks like one group of people, or you can spread them so thin, like a minority population, say put 10% of them or something in, along a bunch of different districts, and then their vote is never a majority enough to get any representation. They're kind of like the two broad categories of it. So um, I know you, maybe the best thing to do next is to talk about some of the cases. I want I want to get to if we could do this better, what types of things will we actually try to be minimizing and maximizing? I think maybe the cases highlight that. So you, you covered a, a case on each of the different types of how the states redistrict. So let's hit those in kind of uh, whatever order that you like um, to highlight some what some of the states are currently doing. So I'll start with Arizona. In Arizona, they uh, have uh, a small number of congressional districts, but it's a relatively competitive state. Uh, they implemented an in, a politically balanced independent commission uh, where 25 nominees, 10 from each of the two major parties and five from neither major party are put into a pool. And then the highest ranking members of Arizona's legislative chambers, so the Speaker of the House, uh, the, mi the Minority Leader in the House, the President or the Leader of the Senate, and the Minority Leader of the Senate, 
get to nominate members to a uh, each get to nominate a member to the independent commission, and the nominated members of that independent commission select their chair. And so, in the process of redistricting for 2010, uh, it, it became very contentious. The five commissioners had to choose a mapping company to uh, assist them with their redistricting process. The two Republicans wanted to hire one uh, mapping company that had been done, who had done redistricting the previous 10 years. Uh, and the two Democrats wanted to hire a mapping company that was owned by Michael Bloomberg and seen uh, more as leaning towards the left. The chair of the committee, which was supposed to be an independent, uh, independent uh, representative, ended up siding with the Democratic commissioners. Um, and this sent the state into a tizzy. Miss um, <laughs> Mathis, which is the name of the chair of that independent commission, uh, was berated by Arizona voters as they held uh, constituent public meetings around the state. Uh, she was insulted by the press, the target of constant criticism, and she remained on the commission despite the overwhelming pressure to leave. Now, before we get into what the results of Arizona's independent commission is like, this is one an example that even though independent commissions remove a lot of the incentives from the gerrymandering process, it doesn't remove controversy. It doesn't remove the emotion uh, and the, the power that ultimately is involved in the redistricting process. People still care. People will still be political and try to um, you know, oust people who they, they don't like heading the commissions. Yeah, I mean, this is an example kind of, uh, it's like when we talk, you hear, discussions about like uh, crime and things here. We're just trying to change the incentives, right? All the incentives are still at play for all the actors to try to take advantage of the system. An independent commission certainly aren't a silver bullet, but it maybe makes, it raises the bar for the ability uh, to be captured. It makes it more challenging to be captured by the process. Well, I think it's interesting. Something that also happened in Arizona is that Miss Mathis or chair Mathis, I guess is the better way to put it actually followed the budgetary rules set out by Arizona to choose this mapping company. So you had these two large mapping companies, one that leaned Republican and one that leaned Democratic, who placed bids to do the mapping for Arizona. And because the left-leaning companies scored better on their application and were chosen, all of this went down. Mm. So it's like, yeah. what can you what can you really do to help stop the perception of, you know making something inherently political. Yeah. So what do we have this, uh, is there more on that case? There is more on that yeah. case. So uh, with Arizona, we have the six goals that they wanted to maximize for gerrymandering. Um, the first is that they're going to comply with the U.S. Constitution and the Voting Rights Act. Seems like a good um, start. And then uh, <laughs> secondly, through Baker v. Carr, a very important Supreme Court case, all states must have states of equal population within a certain variance um, but these last few are really the more innovative uh, features of the Arizona. One, they wanted to maximize competitiveness. So to the extent practical, they wanted competitive districts, districts to be drawn uh, so that in a wave year, one party or the other could win. Compactness, uh, which is just the geographical compactness of a district, and uh, geographic features to be mm -hmm. included. So uh, competitiveness being really the distinct factor from the Arizona case. Yeah, so they have a few 
things that they are explicitly trying to maximize as part of the progress, uh, as, excuse me, as part of the process. And um, we can talk, we can, we'll save this for recommendations, but just as another kind of hint here, these things aren't maybe in uh, perfect correlation, right? Sometimes these things might be in conflict. Trying to be competitive and compact, if a district is uh, heavily one party or another, you might run into some trade-offs across these different goals. And so I know this is going to factor back in at the end, but just again to highlight, um, the independent commission has some advantages over these other issues, but you still got to clearly define what you're trying to maximize. And in this case, it's not always clear what we're trying to maximize or that what we're trying to maximizing isn't in tension with one another. Okay, how about a, an example from uh, Ohio and Rhode Island where you talk about the advisory commission? Yeah, so advisory commissions, as Zach talked about earlier, they're a little bit different from the legislature drawing the lines. You have a little, like a, it can be however big. Uh, I'm pretty sure Ohio has six members and Rhode Island has 18 members, strangely enough. Uh, I'm, Rhode Island usually has like one district for their entire state. So okay. it, it works better in smaller states. <laughs> so the advisory commission serves as like a, just a little body that helps the legislature along when they can't reach agreements and stuff. They they suggest things to the legislature, and the legislature can say, yes, sure, let's do that, or they can just say, no, we don't think this is valuable advice. We'll just go with what we know is best. Um, so they're not perfect, but they're a little bit better. Um, it really just depends on how the commissions are made up and how they choose their members. Um, there are no big things like Arizona where things have warranted legal intervention. It's It could still harbor some partisan bias. It really it just depends, honestly. That's that's kind of the solution we come to. So with the advisory commissions, the legislature still ultimately is drawing the districts. Do they, right. uh, I guess it probably varies by state, but do they have to use some versions of what the advisory comes up with or can they just kind of throw them out and say, thanks for your time, but no thanks? Yeah, they can completely throw them in the trash. Okay, so it's yeah. very <laughs> advisory in that it way. Is. It's it not is. binding. Yeah. Okay. Sometimes uh, it's math, sometimes it's just, here, we think you should do this. Yeah. But. Interesting. It's just a, at least another layer of like forced information gathering from outside of the legislature, which right. is better than no stops in the process, right? right? Do you have any sense um, of how common these are compared to other uh, types of, um, uh, you know, we have the independent commissions. I know that were there were a few of them, but are there, do we know kind of breakdown by these just off the, if it's something you looked into? It's, yeah, not, so, it's for, it's so it's kind of interesting this past election cycle, we had a couple of, a couple of states move around and actually establish independent commissions, Okay, um, which was interesting. Yeah, there were several on the ballot box for this past right, election, right? Right, right. Um, one of them was really close. We were talking about Utah, it in like... Utah, it was, it, the numbers aren't, I'm not 100% sure on the numbers, but they were really, it was like... 49.4 to 50.6. Yeah, it was like within and two percentage points. And it yeah. took a long time for them to to figure out if this um, proposition passed, which is interesting because every other state elected it by a landslide. It wasn't was, even close. It was not even close. So yeah, the it was, for Utah's, it was 50.34, yes, and then 49.66, no. <laughs> and that's with a hundred. Half of a percentage point. Yeah. Yeah. And so... It was just kind of astounding to see, based on our research and those other elections, why Utah was so close. Was so, yeah. close. so yeah, back to your question about who does what. 
31 states utilize their state legislature to do congressional redistricting. Um, seven do independent commissions, five do advisory commissions, and two do politician commissions. Um, now, for those who are adding it up, it does not add up to 50 because there <laughs> are, there are some states that only have one congressional district, so they really don't need to have yeah. one of a state to draw their lines or anything like that. Yeah. When the state when the state is the district, there's not a whole right. lot of there's drawing of lines. <laughs> It'd be a little weird if all of a sudden there were drawing state <laughs> level districts. Away, you're like not, not here. Yeah. Okay, so uh, that covers the uh, independent commission and the advisory commission. So, what was an example of a uh, politician commission that you found? So, um, <clears throat> the only two states in the U.S. that do politician commissions for congressional redistricting are Hawaii and New Jersey. Um, they both pretty much have the same process. Um, Hawaii has nine members. Uh, the majority and ma minority leaders in the House and the Senate each choose two commissioners for a total of eight, and then all eight choose a ninth member. Um, New Jersey has a similar process, except they have 13 members. Um, the main difference between a politician commission and an independent commission is that elect elected officials are allowed to directly participate in the process of redistricting. Um, Hawaii only has two congressional districts, so it hasn't been um, as controversial as other states like Arizona. Um, but because it is a smaller state, um, it seems to be less politicized. So there's not as many kind of districts to break up across uh, the like historical evidence for them being contentious as less, which kind of makes sense. Um, right. And that probably stands in <clears throat> kind of stark juxtaposition for a large state like maybe the one we live in, right? Texas. <laughs> yeah. It is quite large and there's probably a lot of districts. And as I remember from your report, uh, uses legislative redistricting. So Let's talk a little bit about how Texas does this. Yeah, so we're going to talk about Texas's legislative redistricting. Uh, the Texas state legislature is responsible for drawing districts for not only congressional members, state legislatures, state legislators, but also the state board of education members, which I thought was pretty interesting and something we hadn't run across mm -hmm. other than um, drawing wholly legislative districts. Um, since the state legislature meets biennially, the the districts must be drawn the first session after the census data is received, um, and members and interested parties will begin drawing maps. It's interesting to note that Texas actually has a redistricting committee in their house chamber, um, which is established every session and doesn't hear bills unless it is um, a redistricting year. So if the legislature fails to draw districts, the Texas Constitution actually requires what's called a backup commission. Um, and so instead of calling for a special session, this backup commission is the Texas Redistricting Board, um, which is comprised of five members, the Lieutenant Governor, Speaker of the House, the Attorney General, the State Comptroller, and the Commissioner of the General Land Office come together and draw the state districts. Um, they meet, adopt their own plans, only has jurisdiction in the months following a regular session. Um, aside from the backup commission, if the state legislature fails to pass congressional or state Board of Education maps, the governor has the power to call a special session, but it's not wholly necessary. Um, if he doesn't call, then we have the state judiciary issues court-ordered maps. So it's kind of, it's very dependent, since in Texas, the state, the state Supreme Court is also political, it's very, in Texas, political. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you can't get away from the politics in, in Texas when drawing districts. Um, this has proven to be problematic for Texas. So... 
The state has been subject to the Department of Justice's preclearance process since the institution of the Voting Rights Act. Under Section 5 of the VRA, nine states were required to submit their redistricting plans to a three-judge panel from the United States District Court um, for the District of Columbia due to their history of voter discrimination and low voter turnout. So this is the preclearance tried to serve as a check on are you, are you racially gerrymandering, which is illegal, um, which is interesting because political gerrymandering is not illegal, which mm-hmm. is an aside, but <laughs> racial gerrymandering is illegal. Um, which so, is, which uh, is sort of a little problematic, right? Particularly in the identity politics of our time, right? I mean, political uh, redistricting starts to be a pretty close proxy for racial redistributing, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. Um, so basically, essentially, under preclearance, the assumption was that there was something wrong with your state's maps until you proved that there was not anything violated. Uh, Texas operated, along with those other states, under preclearance until 2013 when the Supreme Court ruled in Shelby County versus Holder that the coverage formula in the Voting Rights Act was unconstitutional, basically meaning that these states no longer have to do preclearance. Um, so if Texas really wanted to, they could be very discriminatory in their map drawing, and the only way it could be remedied is if uh, somebody took it to the Supreme Court and said there's uh, racial gerrymandering happening here. And in the time that's, I guess we haven't done redistricting since the, 2010, since 2010, yeah. so we'll see what the impact is for uh, not having to do the pre-clearing uh, in a couple of sessions, right? Okay, so before we move to your recommendations, what is a way of, how can we think about uh, what ideal redistricting would look like? So if we were, you know, I think it's easy to be critical, um, and, it, and particularly some states make it really easy, right, when they're, I think it was, was it North Carolina that just essentially put it in its documents that this is racially based <laughs> redistricting, right? Well, so some, yeah, they, they're, North Carolina is one that completely split a college campus in half. Yeah. They put it yeah. in one district and half the campus in the other district. Yeah. And so it's... Which is very interesting to see states and their motivation for redistricting. Yeah, so there's some clear examples, I think, of like racially motivated discrimination. But if we were, if we were, you know, a, a group of consultants and we were trying to come up with what types of things would we recommend states are trying to to maximize or minimize? And one of the things we talked about in the class that I liked that maybe someone could could uh, tell us about is the uh, efficiency gap of the of the votes. Um, so I think that one's one that we should talk about. But, you know, uh, earlier we talked about things like competitiveness, compactness, geographical features were something that Court was mi- uh, mentioning. So I was just wondering, I know people from the political process kind of have to decide what the ultimate things we want to do in this process are. But just as a, a group of people who've spent more than more time than, than most uh, <laughs> relatively independent people on this topic... Um, what types uh, let's maybe talk about the efficiency gap and then maybe different things that you all think from your research would be good for states to be maximizing or minimizing. Yeah, so the efficiency gap is a way to quantify gerrymandering. Um, it's a method to um, aggregate all of a like a redistricting plans, cracking and packing choices into a single number. It was developed by a law professor and research fellow um, in 2015. And so it's defined as the difference between wasted votes divided by the total number of votes cast in the election, and wasted votes are those that were cast for the losing party in that election and those in excess of 50% of the total vote for the winning party. So 
it's basically just a measurement of the undeserved seat share. And we thought that that was a really cool way of making gerrymandering tangible because for a lot of people it's just this thing that happens. It's an idea where people are not getting represented well, like their, their needs aren't being um, reflected in what happens in their state's politics. So, so my, my understanding of that is it's essentially how many votes could be thrown in the trash can, not matter at all, for the outcome to be the same. Right. right? Okay. So what other things, I mean, we talked a little bit about competitiveness, we've talked about compactness, we've talked about representativeness. Are there other ideas about ways that um, this could be done or values that we should be paying attention to? Well, an interesting test, uh, aside from these values, that lets us see what, how can we prevent the worst cases of partisan gerrymandering? How can we identify those and come up with a test to see, uh, is this too far? Well, the efficiency gap is a good test, and it's definitely one that should be used to compare districts across the country so the most egregious examples of partisan gerrymandering can be limited. Another is the median versus mean test. This was used in a Supreme Court case in the state of Pennsylvania where a district map was analyzed versus uh, a trillion different, possibil uh, different possible maps. So what we mean by this is that if you take a given district and you add and subtract land from that district to make uh, small changes such that there's many, many, many different possible variations on that map with just small changes, they generated over a trillion maps and showed that the map that the Pennsylvania legislature was trying to uh, pass was more partisan than 99.99999% of the maps. And so, oh my goodness. <laughs> that's in such a tale of the distribution. <laughs> okay. And so, uh, by generating all of these alternative maps that just have very small changes and comparing uh, the level of partisanship in, of those maps, we can see what the most egregious examples are and start to see how a standard where you could say if this district is more partisan than 90% of all possible maps for, that, that could be generated. Uh, that we could prevent some level of partisan gerrymandering. Yeah, I, I like this one. I mean, I know this is one we uh, talk some about, but I like pulling. I mean, I teach statistics, um, <laughs> <laughs> so I was. I really like this idea of generating a hypothetical distribution of potential districts and getting a really, really large number of them. And this is easy to do with uh, all kind of mapping services that are out there now. Um, and then see within the within the distribution of all the possible mapping, uh, all the possible design of the districts, how gerrymandered is the one that's chosen, <laughs> getting into the point zero 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 one tail uh, is probably some evidence for some um, gerrymandering at play. Um, so are there other so the use of statistics and the use of mapping is one that we we have a greater access to in the past that can really complement probably these independent commissions and advisory commissions. Is there anything else like that before we move into the recommendations that are worth highlighting? The last one that I would say is uh, if a state values compactness, uh, there's an index called the Polsby Popper Index, and this compares the uh, shape of a district to that of a perfect circle mm -hmm. to measure uh, how for lack of a better word, cattywampus a district looks, <laughs> uh, how gerrymandered it is. Uh, and that's another index that can help ensure that states are compact. But as we know, uh, with minority districts or uh, just respecting communities of interest or geography, 
some districts are not going to be a perfect circle. So we didn't think that that was as important of a metric, but that is another uh, quantif a way to quantify one of the values that we might hold high mm -hmm. for gerrymandering. I think kind of going off of court, when you look at a district, I think we've all been guilty of this prior to this directed study, and you see one that stretches ridiculously long across the state, you're like, oh, well, that's gerrymandered. And probably, <laughs> but... 99.9999% chance. But now, you know, you have to think about what the state values as well. Yeah. So if it does value these geographic factors or it does value communities of interest, they may be doing their darndest to respect that value, which may right. give you a funky-looking district, but that district may be as effective as one that's almost perfect on a Pulsby-Popper index. Right, you find, find it hard to balance all of the things that a state values and trying to create the quote-unquote perfect district. Yeah, I mean, you can imagine, like, if people naturally selected into neighborhoods by race, for example, right. which is something that we know people do either uh, consciously or, or not, or deliberately or forced, depending on the types of policies going on. But the people do naturally uh, select into neighborhoods of people like them with some regularity. And so you can imagine, you know, a a district that isn't a perfect circle, because if it was a perfect circle, it would just cover the white neighborhood. Or that if it was a perfect circle, it might just cover the black neighborhood. And that would look a lot like packing if it was just a complete circle. Whereas if you had one that was kind of a narrow finger, kind of like from the classic gerrymandering uh, figure that we looked at from the, from the cartoons in that time, um, you might automatically assume it has to be gerrymandered for political purposes. But it might be that the thing that they're trying to maximize is some degree of representativeness, for example. And I think that's where the other piece of this that uh, comes in, which is one to think about that it's hard to know how to wait, but is the this idea of like community landmarks or things that are central to a community like a college campus or like a, a district of some sort. And it, can, it gets really fuzzy in knowing how to balance those things. Um, okay, and being mindful of everyone's time, let's jump into, given all of this, what was some of the group's recommendations for pulling, wrangling some of the political partisanship out of the redistricting process. So one of our one of our recommendations, and it's the first recommendation, is just establish an independent commission in every state for redistricting. We mentioned earlier that, you know, independent commissions are bodies that are truly independent from the political process, and they draw the maps for the state legislatures. Membership requirements, which, of course, are laid out by each state, ensure that legislators and public officials are barred from serving as commissioners, so there's no political gain there. Um, furthermore, some some states even go as far as barring commissioners from running for offices in the districts they've drawn. Some uh, require that they not be political staff. Um, it just really depends on the state. There are um, quite a few, I say quite a few, a, couple, a handful of independent commissions in the United States so far. The oldest being Washington, established in 1982. Um, then you have Idaho in 1994, Arizona in 2000, California in 2008, and then most recently we have uh, Colorado, Michigan, Missouri, and Utah in 2018. So um, there's definitely a trend in this direction. Mm -hmm. So they're starting to become more prevalent. I think the best case for an independent commission comes from the Arizona case, um, regardless of the wildness that came from <laughs> the, the yeah the backlash the 
everything that came from choosing a mapping company, they did. They were able to settle on um, values that they wanted and competitiveness, which I think we all found very interesting, being one of them. And the districts in Arizona swung with the waves of, of politics. So when um, the far the Tea Party individuals came in, almost all of their seats, or the majority, at least the majority of their seats, became Tea Party. But when you know the a blue wave or anything like that came in, the majority of the seats went Democrat. And so having an independent commission that can say, hey, we're going to do, we're going to prioritize these values and able to draw something up like that, I think is by far the best case that independent commissions should be utilized. Yeah, it seems like, I've talked about this throughout the semester, but it just seems like such a clear case for having an independent experts do rather than leaving it up to the political process. I mean, I'm really struggling to think of good reasons why it should be left to the people who benefit or lose from the districting process to let them pick the rules of the game. It just seems like a really not such a great idea from an incentive standpoint. So the the next recommendation you have um, sets uh, suggests that we should set some standards for extreme partisan gerrymandering. So what do you what do you mean by that? So this harkens back to the efficiency gap and uh, the median versus mean test for generating maps. With this recommendation, we really want to give the courts some teeth uh, and allow them to strike down maps that truly are unjust. Uh, right now, the courts will strike down examples of racial gerrymandering that do not benefit minorities through the Voting Rights Act. That has been limited by Shelby County versus Holder in 2013. Uh, what this recommendation aims to do is to uh, if we were to amend the Voting Rights Act or Congress were to require states to have less partisanly gerrymandered districts through setting a standard with the efficiency gap uh, such that, you know, 20% uh, of a state's votes cannot be wasted uh, or, um, you know, any given district map must be less partisan than 90% of uh, given maps would, in, in, coupled with an independent commission, be enough to ensure that most votes in the United States count, uh, that states still vary and can choose what values they want. But just like there is a requirement that there's equal population in different states, there's a requirement that states' votes aren't being wasted through the efficiency gap or that members of districts aren't being packed and cracked so badly uh, that they don't feel like their vote counts. Yeah, I really like this idea of setting, you know, kind of a legal standard for using some of these measures uh, and not just kind of focusing on one because we know some challenges with just hyper-focusing on one metric, but having a couple of metrics that take into account the general thrust of what we're trying to do here and then setting some bar of, hey, it can't be this gerrymandered. Like you've got to get to something that is reasonably competitive. So... Um, how how do we go about making these these changes? I mean, uh, you know, these it seems like it's a tough sell to get legislatures to relinquish that power all by themselves. So, how might we find ways to uh, get structures that more look like independent commission based in kind of rational measures that we can compare across? How, how would we do that? I think the best way, and it's kind of difficult, so. All of us, in conjunction with this class, took a state and local government class, mm -hmm. um, which has nothing to do with redistricting, but did show us some of the the institutions that 
governments can use to, um, or citizens can use to make their governments kind of bend to their will. Mm -hmm. And one was the initiative process. Uh, like a ballot initiative? Like, yeah, yeah like okay. a ballot initiative. So you had mentioned that, you know, a legislator is not going to be very happy when you try to take the power away from them. Um, and so the only way to kind of go around that is to have the initiative process. Now, that's not a thing in every state, so that also poses an issue. Um, but in the states that it is, if you can, are able to get this independent commission on the ballot, it seems to have success. It passed every every, ba every ballot measure this past election passed, um, with the exception of a really close call in Utah. <laughs> but it still ended up but passing. It still ended up passing. Super close. <laughs> um, but in other states, it was by wide margins. Yeah. So it seems like when you try to take the, at least in those states that it did pass by wide margins, when you pose something that says we're going to take the politics out of this, it seems like um, citizens are very apt to do so. Um, yeah, it makes sense to me. I mean, I think it's, again, a pretty, picking the exact goals and the exact ways of doing it is challenging. However, I think you can say with really strong confidence that letting the political bodies, the legislative bodies decide for themselves what the districts are going to look like just leaves the power in the hands of the people that have it rather than in thinking about uh, representative democracy or thinking about racial disparities. Um, it's certainly in the winner's incentive structure to solidify power. And so uh, having independent commissions seems like a, a clear win for just the citizens. And so that seems like a really easy strong recommendation, I think, given the research you all have done this semester. And then having these kind of objective measures that give us real indications when gerrymandering is present, maybe it doesn't tell us the best way to do it, but it certainly says these are clear examples where it's in the gerrymandering category, um, given our new, uh, giving our access to like dist uh, digital districting tools and measuring things uh, like the efficiency gap seems like those are clear measures of, in their extreme, this is clearly gerrymandering. You wouldn't be in this case otherwise. So I think taking together independent commissions and thinking about these two specific criteria are really is really spot on. So I, I commend you for wading through this topic and coming up with these recommendations. Um, we have just a couple of minutes. Is there anything that we haven't covered so far as part of your report or as part of this course that you think would be interesting or uh, useful to share with the listeners? Um, I had a thought about how we're trying to minimize the politics in gerrymandering, but it ultimately will help with civil participation and voter turnout. A lot of people don't vote because they don't think their vote counts, and um, they're probably right sometimes. So uh, it's really important um, to maximize voter turnout and civil participation and help help people become more involved in this process. Yeah, it's a nice kind of positive externality or an extra benefit to this yeah. is if people don't believe, if pe a lot of people do believe their vote doesn't matter, that it's wasted. And in really sweet uh, districts where there's a huge efficiency gap, to your point, that's probably true. I mean, if it's 70-30, your vote probably doesn't matter that much. Um, uh, so if you have these things more competitive and if people know that it is independent experts making the districts, um, I, I would think they would have much more confidence in the districts than knowing that the other parties 
uh, people had designed them, right? Um, anything else? I think one thing we didn't touch on specifically in this report, but I think is interesting in terms of its utilization in gerrymandering is the role of technology. Mm -hmm. um, specifically, we had covered its uh, a, yeah a GIS program called Maptitude that the founder of it has been very interested in keeping it in a good light and that stating, you know, this is not a partisan software and the partisanship comes from the individual utilizing the mouse, is, mm -hmm. I believe specifically right. what he said, um, which could be very true, right? But utilizing something like that allows you to say, hey, this small census block, I don't want it in my district because it would sway the vote. And so um, by utilizing that kind of GIS software, you know, you're able to make these districts that are deeply one color, right? And so without that technology, if you go back to, you know, cartography in general and just like mm -hmm. with pins and drafting <laughs> maps and I just think that the evolution and, and introduction of technology into this has, has deeply entrenched gerrymandering. Um, and I mean, really, it shouldn't be called redistricting anymore. <laughs> Basically, flip a coin, and are you, did you get benefited by the gerrymandering? Yeah, I think um, thinking through the ways that big data um, and uh, software that allows us to manip manipulate that data for whatever ends uh, very carefully and very fine-grained has this nice benefit of, of giving us the data and knowing what all else equal uh, what variables are influencing what, but that also gives the tools to people who want to use it in a nefarious way, even better tools. Um, you see this playing out in you know social media world and uh, the way in which ads, for example, can be tailored specifically to people of, of a particular characteristic. And so some of these tools definitely open up new possibilities like doing things, creating a trillion different districts to see which ones are the most gerrymandered. It also comes with the the ability for, depending on who's drawing the lines, to really, 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 really fine grain their districts in their favor based on voting histories and all kinds of things, which I think, again, highlights the importance of shifting this from the political process to an independent expert process because the tools that the legislators are going to have become really fine-grained in getting the outcomes that they want. So... Well, I think our time is up. Um, thank you so much for your work on this. This has been uh, a fun directed study. It's been fun to learn more about these things myself and wrestle through these issues with you. Um, so thanks for all your hard work, and uh, I look forward to sharing this one. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you. Dr. Hill.